Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the only way to end COVID restrictions is not by winning court battles, but by winning over hearts and minds. Plus, we talk Quebec politics and the federal government's war on vaping. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. Hope you are having a fantastic day so far. We have a bit of a packed show today. There's been a lot going on and only so many days in the week, so we're trying to get as much as we can in. We're going to be talking about vaping. We're going to be talking about Quebec politics. And of course, you better believe we're going to be talking about the battle over vaccine mandates, not just at Western University in London, Ontario, but also in Canada, where per Justin Trudeau's executive fiat, the mandates at the federal level for borders for air travel will be coming to an end on September 30th, or specifically on October 1st. So if you're uh, traveling on an overnight flight September 1st to, or sorry, September 30th to October 1st, you get to like dramatically rip off your mask mid-flight. If you take off, you may need a Rive Cam, but by the time you land, you don't. It's all going to be very exciting. It's Canada. People are probably just going to keep their masks on, but you never know. But I do want to talk about this because I I devoted considerable attention last week to saying even with all these reports coming out that the mandates are going to be gone by the end of this month, people should not be too excited. And I was not trying to be a Debbie Downer. I always try to be a, a ray of sunshine if possible. It's very difficult sometimes, but I try. But it was more that the government has never apologized. And it's not, I'm not one of these like really emotional and overly sentimental people that's like, no, you didn't say I'm sorry. So it's, it's more than that. It's because the government says still, and they were clinging to this when they made the announcement yesterday that this was all about the science and that they haven't changed their minds. The science has changed. It was unsafe to do this a week ago, but now it's safe. And it's the same rationale that they'll use if they bring it back. Because when every other country in the world, for the most part, made the announcements that it was gone, they did it in a celebratory way. When restrictions ended in Israel, when restrictions ended in the UK, when restrictions ended in most American states and so on, it was done because they said, yeah, we beat this. It was like George Bush with the Mission Accomplished banner. Justin Trudeau, while making the announcement that the mandates were ending, said this. We stepped up during this pandemic as individuals, as communities, to get vaccinated uh, quicker and to higher levels than just about any other country in the world. And because of that, studies have shown that we avoided hundreds of thousands of deaths because of the decisions uh, that municipalities, the provinces, the federal governments took during this pandemic that kept people safe. And right now, the best thing each of us can do to prevent a resurgence of COVID-19 as winter approaches is to make sure that you get up to date in your 
uh, vaccinations with the new formulations coming out that'll keep us even safer. And that'll mean that we won't need to uh, take further steps, uh, hopefully, uh, if everyone gets vaccinated. So he's not even saying it's over. He's saying, well, it's over for now, but everyone has to get vaccinated because if you don't, I might have to do something else. As though he has no choice, as though he has no autonomy. And it is this sort of Damocles hanging over people's heads that was exactly why when they suspended the air travel vaccine mandate so long ago, I said, I hope the lawsuit carries on. And that lawsuit has been thus far carrying on. Because the government thinks that all of this was good. The government thinks all of this was helpful. The same government that thought uh, we had to put people on planes after they have proven they're vaccinated was a good idea is also the government saying, well, we followed the science, so just trust us, and it's on you. It's not, it's not our decision, it's your decision whether we get more restrictions. And this is what's happening now. They're moving the discussion, they're moving the narrative to, as you heard in that clip, up-to-date vaccinations. So if they do put in restrictions, it's not even going to be where your two doses is enough to classify you as fully vaccinated. It's going to be where you need to have a vaccine within the last eh, perhaps six months, maybe even three months. You never know. And that is the only way you get to say that you are up to date. And booster mandates like they have at Western University in London, Ontario, are going to be what replaces the old version of mandates. And just taking a look at the Western situation... On the weekend, the Superior Court of Justice, before whom lawyers for the university and also Lisa Bildy, representing a number of students affected by the vaccine mandate, argued their case, and the court sided with Western. The court released its decision on the weekend saying that Western has the right to manage its own affairs, and it's Western's authority that decides whether this policy is valid or not. It was not a constitutional challenge. And there's a reason for that, because they were trying to go after the school on very narrow grounds on the collection of privacy and the obligations and regulations on that. And the court still found a wide latitude, a wide berth that it was able to afford Western that basically say Western can set a policy and then come up with whatever collection mechanism it needs to to enforce that policy. And I find this all to be so disheartening. And, and it's an example of why the legal battles are important, but they're also not the be-all and end-all, because I, I have a degree of pessimism about where courts are going to land on these issues, because we know that courts have given governments uh, a lot of deference on this because of the pandemic. They've given governments a lot of latitude to say, well, yeah, it's a deadly pandemic. So even though you're violating constitutional rights, I guess it's, you know, demonstrably justified, reasonable limits, free society, all of that stuff. That section one test that most Canadians know now, because it's the one that blocks, the one that blocks so much liberty from taking hold in policy because it focuses on government's rationalization for infringements on freedom. So right now we have at the federal level them saying we have to get rid of these mandates now because the science no longer science no longer requires them and then at uh, one particular university you have the mandate that is going beyond any mandate the federal government has put in which it claims is rooted in science. It's amazing how science can say so many different contradictory things. And this is, I think, where the important truth is that people need to understand here. It's not about politics. It's not about the law. It's about culture and it's about society. 
government responded to society. It was people, people wanted restrictions. People wanted restrictions. Justin Trudeau won an election on the backs of threatening the unvaccinated by taking away their right to work for the public service, to work, uh, to ride a plane, to ride a train, to all of that. That was something that Justin Trudeau was rewarded for doing. People wanted it. Now, have people changed in the last year? Yes, you throw the convoy, you throw other protests, you throw uh, more pandemic fatigue in there. Totally agree, people change. But the reality is the piece of paper that we call the Constitution is not going to save you. Justin Trudeau, the Liberal Prime Minister, is not going to save you. It's winning over the hearts and minds of people that is, I believe, the only way we turn the page on this. Because if there is no one willing to comply, it doesn't matter what the pieces of paper say. When we come back, we're going to talk about Quebec politics, the election looming next week, but some bigger picture themes, especially with Quebec's COVID response that I want to get into with Notre Dame de Grasse candidate for the Quebec Conservatives, Dr. Roy Epen. That's all straight ahead. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. We don't do a lot of Quebec politics on the show, and a part of it is because it is just this, this different animal, as I've always said, and it's something that I don't have a foothold in as much as I do in other forms of politics. But it is important. We've got an election coming up, and there's a new conservative party, which I think is very, very much worth pointing out and acknowledging. My colleague, Ellie Kensin-Nantel, has been doing a fair bit of coverage on this at True North. Uh, but also, I think it's important to point out that the the CAQ, the party led by Francois Legault, which is in government now, ran last time as a conservative party, and it became the province that had the most draconian restrictions in Canada as far as COVID is concerned, from uh, curfews to the threat of taxing the unvaccinated, you name it. So Roy Epen, I have known for many, many years. He's a physician in Montreal. He's also the Quebec Conservative Party's candidate in Notre Dame de Grasse and a fantastic supporter of independent Media and True North, and he joins me now. Uh, Roy, it is great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me on. I mean, oftentimes, I just want to sort of put this out there for the non-Quebecers in the audience first. There, I think, is this mystical quality of Quebec politics and that it doesn't really exist on the same plane sometimes and the same co coalitions and fault lines as, as pol uh, politics in the rest of Canada. So uh, what is it that the Conservative Party of Quebec has really been about in this election? What are the issues that uh, are really defining your and, and your party's campaign? So uh, Eric Duham and I are friends for quite a time and Eric has done something quite remarkable. He's trying to move the the conversation from the sovereigntist uh, federalist kind of perspective and really talk about issues that affect everyday life. So things like the pandemic, things like economic affordability, things like the rights of children and the rights of adults and the right, you know, we, we basically want more freedom. Um, he took the party from 500 members when he first joined, when he first uh, became our leader to 60,000 members right now, which is, uh, pretty much astonishing. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, we've gone from 0.5% of the polls to about 20% of the polls, which is also pretty astonishing. 
One thing that, that I saw in the last Quebec election, a lot of conservatives that were supporting uh, François Legault and the, the CAQ as an alternative from the Liberals, an alternative from the, the Parti Québécois, uh, but a lot of these people very disappointed. I, I think one of the primary uh, frustrations is, uh, outside of COVID, the opposition and hostility to uh, oil and gas development, for example, and, and also you look at COVID protocol. Quebec had among the strictest COVID measures in the country curfew, threat of attacks on the unvaccinated. Are you sensing when you talk to people that you're trying to court the votes of that there was some buyer's remorse in the last election? Oh, very much so. Very much so. If you look at Mr. Legault's uh, promises that he made, he's broken pretty much all of them. He he said he was going to cut taxes. He didn't. He said he was going to reduce the size of the civil service. He actually grew it tremendously. He said he was going to allow liquid natural gas uh, uh, exploration. He, he broke that promise. Um, in fact, there, there's a lady that was celebrating his victory at, at one of his victory parties who now is voting against him. So I think there's a lot of buyer's remorse. I mean, he, he, he kind of tried to put himself off as sort of uh, middle of the road or even a little bit to the right. And he, he's not. He's the same leftist as anyone else. Uh, running, you know, uh, in, in Quebec, we are we are the new new voice for change. I have heard from a lot of people, specifically Anglophones in Quebec, at, at just this increasing marginalization, which obviously has been going on for many years now. But I mean, even just absurdly earlier in the campaign, Francois Legault apologized for having a French or an English page on his website in addition to a French page. So, so there is really no place in the existing Quebec political structure for the English minority, is there? Um, so that, that was kind of embarrassing. And on top of it, um, he refused to debate in English. Mm. Um, there will be no English debate in this, uh, in this election campaign. Um, Eric, on the other hand, has been very open to the English community um, and other communities in Quebec. Um, he has his, his nationalist side, but he, he thinks that Quebecers should all be equal and, and, and unite. You know, Francois Legault tries to separate people and we try to unite people. Um, he's, he's done interviews with all kinds of in, in, in English uh, people. He, he did a, a big interview with Jordan Peterson a, a few weeks ago, uh, which has gotten hundreds of thousands of hits. Um, Eric, Eric is very open and, and, and uh, the English community should stop feeling held hostage by the Liberal Party and, 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 and look at other alternatives. And that's actually happening. Um, we have a new law called Bill 96, which is quite oppressive towards English and other minorities. And our party opposes it because it, it violates the Quebec Human Rights uh, Code 38 times. Any law that violates the, the Human Rights Code of a, a province that many times has something seriously wrong with it. So the Liberal Party of Quebec, which has been the traditional party of the Anglophone minority, um, has, has done its best to drive the Anglophone minority away. They voted twice for this oppressive Bill 96. On third reading, they did vote against it, but not before they made it worse. Um, and because of that, 15 of their 30 members from the last uh, legislature have resigned and are not running again. 
So the liberals are in main in, in major in main trouble, and I think that, as Eric says, the English community should not feel held hostage by the the Liberal Party of Quebec. Just on Bill ninety six, I, I just saw the other day that OtterBox, the you know the largest uh, cell phone case provider, is no longer letting Quebecers purchase cases because they are not con- convinced they're able to be compliant right now with that. So it, it it's not just about you know, this proclamation that, yes, we support the French language. There are very real-world economic consequences to some of these things, and and I, I do think people suffer from them. I, I want to just turn to healthcare, though. This is obviously your specialty, not just as a candidate. You're a, a physician. You have been for, for many years. Uh, you've come out and, and talked about some very— I mean, what I would say for a lot of politicians are third-rail issues— on healthcare, which is looking at a way to deliver services better and not just rely on government, government, government. I was wondering if you could explain, I mean, your personal approach to this, but also your parties. So I, along with several other doctors and health professionals wrote our uh, health policy. Uh, We saw from the pandemic that we basically did not have a functioning health system that was able to, to actually cope with all of these things. Um, so we looked at various other systems uh, of doing healthcare. We ranked quite lowers for uh, healthcare uh, compared to other countries, and we looked at countries that did better. Um, you know, people will immediately say that I'm trying to uh, mimic the United States. We are not. We are actually trying to mimic Sweden. Um, Sweden has a system with private healthcare. Uh, we would like eventually to have a private hospital. Uh, the Swedish system also has a 30, 60, 90 day guarantee where after 90 days, if the state does not give you health care, the, uh, the state will be required to pay for private health care. Uh, we also want to uh, allow insurance um, to pay for uh, health care, which will be tax deductible um, and was uh, allowed under the Shaouli decision, um, which was several years ago. But the Quebec government seems to have completely ignored the Supreme Court ruling saying that that, that was possible. Um, we have many other things. Uh, for instance, one of the other things I find very interesting that we have in our is that we're giving uh, autonomy insurance. So you can buy autonomy insurance when you're younger um, or even when you're older to get you into a better nursing home or, or keep you at home. We think the best thing for older people and, and people who have illness is to try and keep them as home as much as, much as possible. Um, so this would also open up secondary markets for more private uh, uh, nursing homes and other such uh, things. We also want to change the way that healthcare is paid for. Instead of giving block grants to hospital, we would uh, allow uh, grants to follow the patient uh, depending where they wanted to go. So we would get uh, even public institutions to uh, compete with each other. Talking about pandemic response specifically, it was hospital capacity, those issues you just alluded to, that was used by government, not just in Quebec, elsewhere in Canada as well, as justification for these measures that are just, in my view, completely antithetical to a free society. The idea that in Quebec people were fined for walking outside their own homes after 8 p.m., the fact that people were, for a time, threatened with uh, having to pay the government a fine if they were not vaccinated. I mean, do these things that all fit in with the vision that the Conservative Party of Quebec has for the province? Uh, certainly not. We believe in freedom. We believe in freedom of choice, and we believe that in, in, in all things, uh, Quebecers 
the individual Quebecer is better informed and better able to make decisions for his own life than, than the government. The government should have given advice um, and, and, and left it at that. Um, I, I, you know, we had some of the worst lockdown measures in North America, but we had some of the worst death rates in North America. So A did not lead to B. Uh, and why is that? We basically have a, a system of uh, care for elderly people, which failed. We also ban the families of these elderly people from going to visiting them in these so-called uh, health, uh, health facilities. They're called CHLDs. Um, and basically these, these older people were not allowed to see their families for prolonged periods of time. And that caused uh, depression, that caused neglect. I mean, uh, families came to wash their family members. They came to feed their family members. They kept them uh, company. And I think we basically should have spent a lot more time examining the harms rather than the unproven benefits. And the, the, the evidence is coming out more and more that these, there were no ben, there were very few benefits. And what we did do was cause a lot of trouble to elderly and young people. Um, and in fact, we have uh, something in our platform that says that if we were in power, we would actually say that if those kind of measures were needed to come back, we would have to have 80 per, an 80%, 90% majority in the House in order for that to pass. So they would have to be broad, broad consensus. And we would also want a lot more discussion than that happened. And we would not silence the opponents. We would allow everyone to speak and then make a decision. And then the politicians should be responsible for that. Um, there needs to be more separations between public health and the politicians. Uh, and there are there are, there were things from the CBC showing that the the government the the, the CAC government was looking for uh, reasons to for that second lockdown. Now, there was no reason for that second lockdown. It was it was purely political theater. One thing when you talk about just the the shake up or make up rather of the assembly in Quebec, I, I've seen some of the polling, and I know there's the obligatory caveat that the only poll that matters is the one on election day. But nevertheless, polling that shows the the CAC could have a significant increase from from its seat count in the previous assembly. And while your party is polling at 20%, it's possible that with the distribution that could amount to no seats. So do you feel that there is some system change that's needed so that when you have a, a party like yours or another one that's commanding uh, one-fifth of the vote potentially or even more, that that equates to representation? So we don't actually have a, an official uh, policy on... Uh, on uh, changing the voting system. Though, in, interestingly enough, the CAC and two of the other parties actually said they would have changed the voting system. But once again, Mr. Legault actually is not able to keep any of his problems. Yeah, like that's the federal liberals. It's all well and good until you uh, get a majority with a minority of votes. And then, uh, well, maybe the system's fine. <laughs> the CAC is more like the federal liberals than anything else, uh, unfortunately. Um, and they're quite a divisive uh, party. but. You know, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think there are several strongholds that we have in, in, in both region. Uh, both those seats are, are very much in play. There are several seats in Quebec City that are in play. And there are even a few seats in Montreal that are in play. I'm, you know, it's, it's actually quite remarkable. In my riding, I'm running at around 14, 15%, according to Main Street, uh, who's a polling company in, uh, out of Toronto or Ottawa. I can't remember which. Um, but uh, I mean, that sounds like a little, but remember my party was running at 0.5% in that writing and 
uh, Kathleen Wild, the previous uh, MA, won that writing with over 65% of the vote. Um, so, uh, you know, we are making progress. And, and uh, the other problem in, in this election is the funding model in Quebec. So, the maximum donation you can give on an off year is for a, a political party is $100, um, which basically makes it very hard for a new party to, 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 to get funded. And in an election year, you can give $200. And you don't even give it to the party. You give it to an, a Quebec who then gives it to the party. So, you know, it it's, uh, severely limits fundraising. But in spite of that, we, we have managed to raise quite a lot of money. Good, good. Well, obviously, we'll have to see what happens on Election Day. Roy Epen, Dr. Roy Epen, candidate for the uh, Conservative Party of Quebec in Notre Dame de Grasse. Good luck, Roy, and thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. That was Dr. Roy Epen here on The Andrew Lawton Show. We will be back with more in just a moment. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're listening to Canada's most irreverent talk show. I want to turn to a bit of a different public policy discussion, which has been brewing for quite a while. I think uh, the better part of five years in this country and has a new development coming ahead, and that is the federal government's war on vaping, which on October 1st is uh, being subjected to a new excise tax that is going into effect that is uh, pushing up by not an insignificant amount the price of electronic cigarettes, vaping products, and all of that. Uh, the government's also talking about putting forward things like a flavor ban and other restrictions. And it seems like there is a lot of there's a lot of agreement largely on the fundamental premise that the tobacco industry and the vaping industry uh, put forward about vaping, which is that it is better than smoking cigarettes. But I think the question comes down to how much better and is it still something that should be encouraged or discouraged? And then, of course, you get to the question of how much should government be at the center of deciding the future of this thing that is legal? And I mean, as I've said, you see them on pretty much every street corner now in a major city. So I want to talk about this with Ralph Wittenberg, who is the president and CEO of Imperial Tobacco Canada and joins me now. Ralph, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So just let's start for people that are unfamiliar with the progression here in the first place. Is vaping a product of the tobacco industry generally? Uh, it started really as a grass movement. Uh, it has been legalized in Canada about four years ago, um, and it really has caught on with consumers. Consumers have tried it, understand the product, um, and it, now 1.3 million Canadians are using vaping products. Uh, E-cigarettes is the kind of umbrella term, um, and uh, they really enjoy it, and uh, uh, we're really happy to uh, uh, to be part of that and innovate and try to bring great brands and innovation that really inspires consumer. And uh, it's a really dynamic field of uh, four years and, uh, and very successful. There seems to be certainly in the media and government discourse about this two different and very, I'd say, distinct demographics 
for vaping. On one side, there's people who have been lifelong cigarette smokers that use vaping as a way to get off of smoking. And on the other side, it's young people that are supposedly sucked into vaping that have never smoked a cigarette in their lives that are really allured by the marketing and the flavors. Which of these stories is true or are they both true to some extent? Well, I think uh, it is an attractive product for consumers. Uh, But we are very clear, it has to be an adult product. It contains nicotine. Um, So therefore, uh, together with our retailers, uh, we make sure that it stays out of the hands of of minors. Um, So that has to be very clear. Yet we know uh, that some of these uh, always are very creative in trying to test new products, etc. But really, it is intended as an alternative for smokers and a less harmful alternative to smokers. That's why we're innovating it. We're trying to make it simple for cigarette smokers to uh, yeah, have their flavor choices to um, simply change a pot um, and uh, and have an experience that is very similar to cigarettes, but with much more flavors uh, so that they can really get off cigarettes for good. So let me ask you about the, the contrast between the two, because it is still a, a, a nicotine product. It is still something that has that quality that cigarettes do. Is it definitive? Is the science definitive in, in saying what the tobacco industry has been saying for uh, certainly the better part of four years, that it is safer compared to cigarette smoking? Well, um it's probably, let's have a look uh, also at the global picture and what others say, and particularly what other health authorities are saying. Public Health England is one of the most vocal ones. They've researched the market uh, for many years now, and they've every year issued a report. They always come to the conclusion that vaping is 95% safer than cigarettes. It has 95% less risk. So it's really significant. Um, and that is what Public Health England is saying. The similar authority in France, New Zealand, they come to the same conclusions. And even Health Canada says that it is a less harmful alternative, particularly to smokers, when you compare it to cigarettes. So it's always about the relative risk to smoking. That's really what it's intended to be. And the majority of the consumers are actually smokers making the switch. One thing that I, I find interesting that a lot of the critics of, of vaping in the industry seem to latch on to is flavors. And I know pursuing a, a ban on flavors has been one of the, uh, you know, go-to policy proposals around the world on this. Explain to me where that comes from, why that's the issue that people raise. Well, flavors are really important for everybody, for smokers uh, to uh, find their, their choice uh, and make the switch from cigarettes. Um so tobacco flavors, they are also out there in the vaping market. Uh, they only account for about 20% of the flavors. So consumers who switch from cigarettes to vaping products, they really enjoy the variety of flavors that they never had in cigarettes. Very successful are fruit flavors um, and uh, mint flavors, uh, even vanilla and, and some of the sweeter notes. Um, and everybody really enjoys this. Now, um, also because it's a new industry and a new category, uh, a lot of starters are also using that. And, uh, and, uh, and that's basically where that logic comes. Well, if it's, uh, attract, it's attractive generally for, for consumers uh, uh, to switch, but also some of the newcomers to, to the market, um, 
enjoy flavors. Now you have to question whether then banning flavors is the is the right approach because it kind of makes it attractive for for everybody and particularly for the smokers who successfully stopped smoking cigarettes, they don't find the flavors they want. The likelihood and also some of the early evidence from the some from some of the provinces in Canada is they default back into cigarette smoking, which from a public health point of view cannot be a good thing. I know it's not a, an apples to apples comparison to compare tobacco to alcohol, but the double standard here has always struck me. You walk into a, you know, an Ontario liquor store, or, which is government owned or in many other provinces as well, and you have every flavor imaginable of beverage. You've got, you know, cotton candy, bubble gum, like even very childlike flavors. And that doesn't attract the ire that it does in your industry. The core of the issue is we have to collectively get these products out of the hands of miners. And it is against the law. The laws are there. The retailers are compliant to it. They check IDs, etc. Um, and collectively have to work to have restrict the access of consumers and basically have people sticking to the law. But, but if I may, Ralph, is, is that not saying that, you know, from the industry perspective, you don't view age as your problem, that that's a retail problem? It is in generally when miners get their hands on the product, uh, it's a problem for us altogether. Um, so, you know, we think uh, the best way to get it out of the hands is basically age verification and access control. It starts with the retailer, but we are our own retailer as well. We have our own uh, retail outlets. We sell online in the provinces where we can. And uh, particularly in online, we have a triple age verification process. Um, so we're trying uh, to use technology to basically prevent youth from accessing it. That's probably the most effective way to do it to uh, restrict access or make the category less attractive to minors means you make it less attractive to everybody, which then in reverse basically means smokers default back to cigarettes, which cannot be a good thing. So really the focus has to be access control and enforcement. So, I mean, I've heard anecdotally, and this isn't scientific data by any stretch, from people that were smokers for years and, and they absolutely swear by uh, electronic cigarettes now. And, and there's been, I think, a normalization. I mean, even some people will use them indoors. Usually they're not supposed to, but they'll use them indoors in places that you'd never smoke a cigarette just because I, I think, generally speaking, they've become fairly accepted here. What is the reception you get when you meet with officials in, in the government, if they even take your meetings? Are, are, what's their view on these things? Do they view them as being a positive? Do they view them as being a necessary evil? Or do they view them as being no worse than the cigarettes that were uh, have been in decline for many years? It's very difficult to see a clear line. But when you look at uh, Health Canada, what they're saying on their website about vaping is absolutely the right thing. The, the core, what we have to bring, the uh, what we discuss, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a good alternative? It all has to come back to science. And the overwhelming scientific evidence, not only of the science that we publish, but also that is out there, um, is that it is a much, much less risky alternative to smoking. So that is the starting point. And then whether you like it or not, uh, there might be different views. But Health Canada basically made it very clear on their, uh, on their website. Now, um, the, the policy, uh, therefore, has to be to keep these products out there. Let us, as an industry, innovate. Uh, let's evolve the industry. Let's contribute to the science. And let's convince as many smokers uh, out there, you know, to make better choices for their health using these products instead of cigarettes. Um, 
But as it is, uh, sometimes the uh, government, uh, the policy proposals that are out there, you have to question whether it is contributing to inform consumers about these alternatives and actually encourage them to switch. Um, starting with, for example, the current uh, consultation that is out there on flavor bans. Um, you know, uh, and that's where we issued our opinions uh, and, and said flavors are important. Youth access is important, but let's focus on really youth access prevention and use the best technology and access controls, education of the retailers um, to enforce the laws. Um, the second thing is excise. Um, it's just coming uh, 1st of October, um, an excise increase or the first excise on, uh, on, on vaping products uh, levied in Canada on a federal level. Um, this will, particularly in the current environment of high inflation, um, uh, vapors who successfully made the switch away from, from cigarettes will feel the price increase. Um, and uh, so sometimes you have to question whether these policy proposals that are on the table and the current laws that are being implemented are helping uh, to basically achieve what uh, Health Canada has said to make people aware about these products and actually get them to use it. Would your, from an industry perspective, Ralph, would your ideal position be for government to sort of take its hands off this and, and respect what industry is doing? Or, or do you see there as being a role that government should take in this? And if so, what is that? Well, I think um, given that it is a product that contains nicotine, it absolutely needs to be regulated. Youth access is absolutely the starting point that we really have to be effective together. Uh, out there. So it definitely needs to be an, um, uh, an industry and a category that needs to be regulated. Um, so youth access, uh, scientific standards, product standards absolutely need to be there. In that, let us innovate, uh, I think is that. Let us market these products responsibly, let us innovate, make it attractive for smokers to switch. Now, I mean, your your vested interest, and, and you talk about wanting to get smokers off of cigarettes, but obviously you're a, you're a company that produces these things, you develop these things, you make money off of these things. So there is a self-interest that I, I think a lot of skeptical uh, people watching this might not be able to get their heads around here, that you have a, a financial gain, whether people are smoking cigarettes or using vapes. So how do you explain that away and sort of where your priorities are? Well, I think we made it as a, our global company, uh, our priority to reduce the health impact of our business. And e-cigarettes is one of those innovations and technology that has been proven really successful. Of course, we are a commercial enterprise. Of course, we have shareholders. We are a listed company in London uh, um, as part of our parent company. And uh, and of course, we are there out there to, to make money along the way. But that gives us the ability to invest, to research, uh, to innovate um, uh, in a way maybe that others can't. And uh, this is where we can contribute something. Um, in a very short period of time, we became as a company, the global leaders in vaping, for example. Now that gives us the ability to develop the next generation of products that even you know, convince more people to, to make the switch. What is the next frontier? Is there something in the pipeline, either in your company or kind of out there, even in a theoretical sense, that is the, the next stage in this process, even beyond vaping? Well, first of all, it, whatever we do, uh, it has to be science-based. Whatever we do, it has to be better than cigarettes. It has to be a less harmful uh, alternative to cigarettes. And globally, what we're seeing is three alternative products that really convince consumers. Vaping, we talked about that, is also in terms of number of consumers, 
the most successful one. Um, it has attracted already uh, the biggest uh, number of consumers. The second one is also coming from the scientific evidence that the issue, the health impact um, from smoking cigarette comes through the combustion process. So the minute you burn and inhale smoke, that is where the health risks come from. But we also see that some of consumers, they still want the tobacco taste. The vapors want to get away from the tobacco taste, but there are still some who like the taste of tobacco. And there's a technology that heats the tobacco only that doesn't burn it. Um, and with that, you reduce a lot of the toxic toxicants that uh, appear through the process of con combustion. It's called tobacco heating products. Very successful in, in uh, parts of the world, uh, Asia, Japan, Europe, etc. Um, and the third one uh, is smokeless to, uh, tobacco products, or in our case, where we innovate smokeless nicotine pouches that are tucked under the lip. Um, you don't inhale anymore, um, but you get the nicotine through the gum. Uh, again, very successful in particularly Northern Europe, where it has a long history. Um, so these are the three main um, innovation territories that seem to resonate with nicotine users. It's a more modern way, uh, um, definitely a much health, uh, uh, less harmful way uh, to consumers' health to enjoy nicotine. Um, those are the three. Ralph Wittenberg is the president and CEO of Imperial Tobacco Canada. Ralph, thank you very much for uh, coming on and shining a light on this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you. I should say, I mean, like I said at the beginning, I've never actually touched, uh, I know I've touched an e-cigarette. I picked it up once thinking it was a pen, but other than that, I've never touched one. I've never smoked a cigarette, so I don't have skin in this game, but I am always very interested in how on one hand we're told this thing is the new evil, and then on the other hand, I hear from uh, not an insignificant number of, of people in my life who are smokers or have been smokers that have talked about this thing that is very helpful to them, that there is science backing up, that even Health Canada says, if you compare one to the other, is less harmful. That doesn't mean it doesn't come without its own harms, however, and I think that it was important that uh, Ralph had to speak to that as well, but uh, obviously this is uh, coming into effect October 1st, so yet another price increase you are going to see in Canada. Canada, and that is thanks to a policy that the Trudeau government put in in the federal budget this year. That does it for us for today. We will talk to you with another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show soon enough. You're listening to The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.